0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we're featuring Portfolio Manager Don Newman, bringing you a discussion recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. For Canadian investors, Don manages two dividend-focused strategies, Fidelity Dividend Plus Fund and the equity portion of Fidelity Dividend Fund. Today, Don speaks with host Pat Bolland about the strategy behind his funds, reflects on the year so far, including the current market environment, and he also touches on how he is positioning his funds in a rising rate environment. Inflation continues to be a large focus for investors, and Don also shares how he thinks about how dividend-paying stocks fit into inflation. Today's podcast was recorded on November 8, 2022. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Don, I got to tell you, I was sitting down at breakfast with four gentlemen and two of them were most interested in talking about dividends. Fascinating. Good, because I didn't think I'd ever have that conversation over breakfast. Yeah, I'm happy to hear it. How uh, how have before we get into your funds, how have dividends done in what has been a very volatile market?
2: Yeah, I, I think Pat, it, it's uh, it's been actually really nice because uh, I think dividend investing um, for the first time in a while is kind of in the sweet spot right now. And you have to think about what's been going on in the market in the last year, sort of obviously rates have come up, the central banks have been a little bit behind. So it's been difficult, if you were purely an income investor, it's been a difficult period for you because bonds have been hit by rising interest rates. If you were sort of in growth, um, you've been hit by rising rates and sort of in multiples coming down. What dividend investing has given you, which has been sort of really good for investors, is a combination of income plus growth, but at a reasonable price. And that's really been sort of the sweet spot. You get the income you need to sort of protect against inflation. Uh, and inflation has been a problem for really the first time in kind of, you know, 30, 40 years. But you not only get the income, you get the growth in income. And like as a financial advisor, one of the greatest um, sort of responsibilities you have to your client is protecting the purchasing p- and growing the purchasing power of their money. Um, and that's one of the, the things that sort of dividend investing does a really, really good job of doing is just sort of getting the income, but it's growth in income and it's protecting the purchasing power of your client's money in inflationary times.
1: Okay, so let's get to your funds, uh, yep. dividend and dividend plus. How do you manage, let's start with how do you manage?
2: Sure. So investors should really think of me as a GARP manager and what GARP means is sort of growth at a reasonable price. Um, but I'm a little bit different than most GART managers because I tend to focus on the reasonable price. And that's also sort of played well into um, a period where sort of valuation multiples have been coming down a little bit. So I try to do really three three things. Um, the one is a pretty obvious one, which is just over the long term, um, I try to sort of you know outperform um, the market. Um, but two, it probably differentiates me a little bit more is I tend to sort of, Torque my risk, sort of up and down, maybe a little bit more than your average dividend manager. So when things are, you know, really tough and sort of we're at the, you know, I feel like we're sort of at the bottom, I'll bring risk up. When things are, you know, a little a little bit frothy, I, you know, I'll t- tend to torque the, the, the risk down. Um, the third thing I try to do is, you know, I, I sort of consider myself to have a real focus on total return. Um, so I might not always have like the highest dividend yield of my um, uh, of my peers because I try to think about your total returns, and I think about total return as sort of a component of like three things. You've got your you've got your earnings growth you sort of add in your dividend yield and you try to maintain um, your your P.E. multiple and you try to maintain that. So if I can find, I'll give you an example. If there's a company that has a 5% dividend yield, but it's not gonna grow, it grows at zero. I kind of think in the multiples, I think it's flat. I think of that as a 5% total return. That's probably not enough for me. What I'm looking, I'm much happier with sort of a 4% yield or three and a half percent yield. But if the company can grow at 10%, um, I'm thinking that if it's a 13.5, 14% return and like that sort of meets my hurdle rate. Um, and if I can think the valuation is reasonable, I'd like to be in those companies sort of, you know, all day long and compound over time.
1: Okay. Uh, talk to me about the difference between the dividend fund and the dividend plus. Sure.
2: Um, I guess the easiest way to think about it, if you think about dividend plus, if you go back to about 2005, um, it, like historically, it used to be our old income trust fund. And it's really, I've tried to keep it fairly sort of separate and distinct from dividend and it's got a little more of an infrastructure feel to it. So there's, you know, sort of utilities and pipelines and, um, you know, torque up and down sort of the real estate component to it, some telecom, Uh, and it tends to have a little less exposure to some of your traditional financials, your banks and your insurance companies, and not maybe as much as the cyclical component, which would be sort of like energy and uh, um, metals mining and that sort of thing. Dividend tends to be uh, a little more of what you'd see in um, you know, your, your more traditional dividend funds. Uh, it tends to be a little more diversified. It has a little more exposure to financials. Might um, throw in a little more cyclical torque there. But you know, one thing I would say is for those investors in dividend funds, you do get some, there's about a 20% sleeve of dividend plus in there. So you actually get, I try to make the funds more compliments to each other so that they actually work well and there's some overlap, but you know, I try to make them more uh, sort of, uh, as I said, complements than, uh, uh, than anything else. You know, you
1: started off by talking about growth and income being one of your parameters that yep. you like, but you didn't talk at all or haven't yet about inflation. Yeah. How does inflation play into a dividend
2: world? Well, I think it it plays really well. And I think for most investors out there and including myself, if you look at like the last 10 years of what's been going on the market, it was sort of very, very similar. And then things changed. So we basically had a world where inflation, the central banks couldn't get inflation to 2%. Rates were pinned at zero and under that, and the economic growth was pretty slow. In that market environment, what you were paid to do is take risk um, because you know the central bank is not raising rates. You know your discount rate is effectively zero for stocks and you don't have a lot of growth in the economy. So you want to go up and you will pay up for growth. And this is kind of what happened to the Nasdaq over the little, you know, five, five or six years is there were some phenomenal growth companies um, and you paid more and more for that sort of elusive growth. But when inflation comes it changes the investing world and we hadn't seen this and it's been new, new to a lot of us and probably most of us um, and I dare say almost all of us probably weren't around investing in the in the 1970s so as inflation comes up um, it pushes the discount rate on stocks up a lot and what you want to then do is focus on companies where you think they, there's you know less of valuation compression you get the yield and then you want to focus on companies that can push price. Along with inflation, take my, like, the really, this is where you find out the difference between an average company and a really good company. A really good company can say, oh, you need our product. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to push price on you. And you know what? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to take it because you need our product. And if you can do that, you're getting that dividend yield, which is great because it helps offset that inflation. But you're also getting sort of the growth in earnings that will, if you start with a 4% yield next year, your yields four on, on your cost base, it's four and a half, then it's five. Um, you just keep getting the earnings growth and the companies can keep increasing their uh, their, their dividends and the yield keeps, serve, keeps improving or the share price goes up and you've got this wonderful inflation hedge.
1: Do you screen for dividend growers?
2: Yeah, well, it's so the answer is yes, but it's done through our sort of fundamental research group. And so the one thing I will, you know, always say and give credit to it, I grew up in this sort of the fidelity system, the turnover, more rocks to go out and talk to companies. You're going to see a whole bunch of portfolio managers today um, that actually sort of, you know, can take some credit for the success of the funds I've got. I think Brett DeLay's here, Dave Way's here, Chris Malazinski's here, um, Connor Gordon's here. They were all analysts. And, you know, all searching and going and finding ideas that sort of say, hey, listen, Don, here's an idea. I think the valuation looks reasonable. They're going to keep growing their dividends. This is a this is a good company that can compound over time. And, you know, in five years, you're going to have a lot more money than you had in the past. So as a fundamental research group, we're, we're always doing it. It's not technical screens. It's just we've actually got the models on the companies and the spreadsheets. And I can go and look earnings growth at this. Payout ratio stays the same. We're like this company's going to pay, be paying a lot more money to shareholders in the next five years.
1: Are you geographically restricted?
2: Uh, no. So um, I basically can go sort of where I want. Um, I tend to be sort of generally North American focused. Um, I know the markets a little bit better. Having said that, if things become cheap. You know we can really go anywhere in the world that's the wonderful part of being part of fidelity international we've got a huge group over in europe um we've got a group in australia we've got a group you know in hong kong and japan you can go all over i tend to like um, companies when I go outside of sort of my North American bucket, I tend to like sort of international companies that may be trading at a discount. So think about like a European company trades in Europe, but it, it trades at it so it trades at a discount because European growth is slow. But it sells 60% of its products to you know outside of Europe into North America. Mm. You can pick up the company at you know 16 times earnings when its uh, U.S. counterpart may t- trade at 21 times earnings, and the growth profile isn't that isn't that different so that's where I'll kind of delve you know maybe sort of like over in European markets
1: that's your valuation call over yeah central banks when we talk about inflation and the handling of inflation central banks are driven to drive down inflation but they've been really aggressive with interest rate hikes that's got to affect you so I'd love your opinion on their
2: handling of inflation so they got a really bad mark for the handling of inflation in 2021 they were sort of feeding the market with a fire hose um with monetary and fiscal uh, stimulus and that was fine at the start of the pandemic um when things started to cool down and the cost pressure started to build up um you started to get a lot of issues on uh, sort of on costs and supply chains and uh, it became very evident that things were starting to run a little bit out of control they were late to the game now having said that um, you know, I give I'd give them relatively high marks for, and the Bank of Canada has done a good job of trying to snuff snuff things out and not let it get out of control. And they, you know, they went hard with 100 bips at the start. They're up to four, and went another 50 bips up to four and a quarter. The one nice thing as an equity investor, what we like is certainty. Um, and we're getting closer to the point. I think the Bank of Canada is close to an end point now. So I don't have to worry about there's obviously the lagged effect uh, on companies. Uh, and it takes about a year for monetary policy just kind of work through the system and start impacting on um, the overall economy. But I think, you know, at four and a quarter, we're probably pretty close to there. Mm. Um, the, the Fed's got a little bit uh, further to go. And I guess the terminal rate looks like it's probably, you know, somewhere in the high fours. Um, they'll probably get there, but by the time of the first quarter. So we can then say, okay, rates are where they need to be. And the market is actually assuming that at some point over the, that you can see by how inverted the yield curve is, meaning the 10 years a lot lower than the two year, that the, the market thinks they are getting the inflation under control and assumes that once this happens, you know, the economy is going to slow and, you know, they they'll get into, uh, cutting rates more down to sort of a natural rate of growth for the economy.
1: Okay. Given the shift we've seen in markets recently, are dividend-paying stocks
2: over or underpriced currently? So valuation? Sure. That's an easy one from a fidelity standpoint. Depends on the company. (laughs) Um, So uh, that's my job is to go in and find companies that are attractively priced at this point. Valuations are not stretched. Um, The nice thing about dividend companies, as mentioned, has played really well into the current environment, is they weren't expensive to start with. And so the PE compression from higher rates really hasn't doesn't affect them too much. If you're trading at 80 times earnings and rates go from 1 or 0 to 4, like 80 can compress to 30 pretty quick. And unfortunately that's what you've seen with a lot of Nasdaq stocks. The growth is still okay, although a lot of the sort of a lot of growth got compressed into 2 years and maybe that slows a little bit, but you start from a really really high multiple. Dividend companies, because they're, they've are they been around a little bit longer, you kind of know a little bit more sort of how they're going to grow. You've got a little more certainty into the cash flows. Um, there's a little more stability there. That stability right in a rising rate market is, is, is rewarded. And so the companies weren't expensive to start with. They're still not expensive. Um, but my job is to go and trade out the expensive ones. And this is one of the things I think I do relatively well. And it's helped me over the last couple of years. If things get expensive... I'll trade them down and I'll shift them in for something that looks a little bit better.
1: We've had a discussion here, and you and I have had discussions in the past about your themes that you find in your uh, portfolios. Inflation was one of the themes that we've uh, touched on in the past, Um, P ratios and valuations and reasonable price and those kinds of things. One other one you mentioned in the past is quality. Where are we in the quality spectrum?
2: Yeah, so I come into the um, the year with th- three basic themes that I wanted to play. You can go back and sort of look at some some of the uh, the nice thing is you can check on these things and look on the uh, the videos we've done. But and the three themes are sort of pillars I had going into the year for the funds I run were one you needed some in- interest rates were going up you needed some inflation protection. Um, so that was in a you needed probably some commodities uh, generally. It, do well when the economy's pretty strong and you've got inflation. Two, you needed, and it just like companies that could push push price and were able to, good companies that if you got inflation, they can say, hey, our costs are going up 4%, but we're going to charge you 5% more. Um, the, the second one was if um, inflation's going up, that means PEs are probably going down. The U.S. market trades at 21 times. It's probably not going to trade at 21 times. Maybe historical is like 16. It probably is going to drop if we get up to four, you know, if we get up to four percent, know, you know, the, the P.E. ratio has got to come down in the market. So it was just like keep valuation um, compressed. And I had sold a lot of my higher multiple stocks at the end of um, 2021, just with the idea that multiples are going to need to compress across the board. Um, that's worked pretty well. Um, the third sort of pillar now, and I'd say I'm shifting a little bit into this, is just go and f- find quality at a discount. And this was probably a little more applicable at least a, f- a few weeks ago but, um, or a month ago. Um, but there started to be, you, you have a, a section of your portfolio that really is just like this rock steady. I know what they're going to earn. I know what the dividends are. I'm pretty, pretty stable there but then when the market comes down you got to go and look for deals and i think that's what started showing up and is start, sh- starting to show up now is there are really good companies that are down 20 25 30% um and what you want to do is say, like, these companies only come on sale once every you know 5 10 years um so like go bargain hunting and then almost have sort of a barbell um, at this point, you want, so you want the stability. You know what the company is going to earn, but you also want to be saying, Hey, listen, I, you know, I've always said this company XY is too expensive. Mm. Well, now it's not too expensive. So if you're going to do it, go and go and find them. Um, find the companies that, you know, were too expensive. The multiples have come down, but over time, they're still great companies and you can buy them at a 30% discount to what you could uh, a year ago. And that's sort of the bucket I'm kind of a little more focused on now then I, I, I would have been at the start of the year. What happened a month ago that changed that? It, it... Well, the, the idea, sort of a month ago, well, the bargain started showing up. For oh, months. I see. Okay. So, like the market went down and it took a beating in September uh, in early October. And you just, you wanted that the idea is like, if opportunity knocks, you got to be there. And that's the one thing we got, like research. I got hundreds of, you know, stock research emails coming into my system every day. And if people are saying, hey, stocks, and you look at the stock chart, you look at the earnings, you're saying, "Hey, this just became a lot cheaper. I'm willing to take." At that point, you just got to say, "Listen, if there's another 10% down, that's fine. Um, but if I think over the next two, three, four years this thing is up 50 or 100%, um, I'm willing to I'm willing to take a little bit of downside with the idea that." Um, the compound total return over the next, you know, two to two to five years is really good for the fund holders.
1: It's interesting. You started off by commenting on commodities, price flexibility, valuation, and, and those kinds of things. How did you how did you play or how did it manifest itself in commodities?
2: Your yeah. Portfolio? So commodities is a thing you generally, as an ex commodities sort of analyst, when the economy is still pretty good um, and supply and demand is tight and multiples are at like six times earnings. It just, and the company, some of these companies are like the energy companies in Canada, you know, partly because of sort of ESG concerns have been shunned by a number of investors and sort of put in the doghouse. So you had companies that were generating cash flows, you know, free cash flow yields of 15 to 20%. Um, it's like, basically you could take yourself private in five to seven years and you don't, they don't have to be public companies anyway, because they're generating so much cash flow. And at that point you just say, hey, like, people don't like them, but like, listen, they're gonna be good stocks and uh, you know, they're working on the environmental stuff. They're working on carbon capture. The industry is getting, trying to get better. They can actually get better, but no one wants to own them. It's, it's a good place to be. And they've been really good um, year to date. You see the energy price right now, we're down to about 74. The free cash flow yields are still really good on these companies. Um, the economy is a little bit slower. So you wanna be, I'd say I probably backed off a, a, a little bit, but, the, the cash flow they're generating is still huge. And the one thing you have them in your portfolio for is the idea if the central banks sort of mess this up again, stop too soon or try to cut rates or something like that, you'll see copper, you'll see all the commodities will tell you they screwed up and will start going up again. Mm. Um, and they'll say you don't have inflation under control. You weren't there. So it's it's almost a, a hedge on the, the central bank stopping too soon. If they stop too soon, the commodities market will let you know. And, you know, at seven times earnings, these companies will will sort of will run again. So you just you have that in as a hedge against the central banks not doing their job correctly.
1: But that ESG concern is going to be around for a long time. It doesn't roll off overnight kind of thing. So what's your... Yeah, typical holding
2: period. Yeah, you're not going to see. It's not that these companies are going to go to 15 times earnings. It's that six or seven times earnings can go to eight times earnings, and even at eight times earnings, you're trading at seven. You're, you're like the cash flow yields are really good, and they can you know end up you know paying a dividend of four percent and buying back 10 percent of the the company this year. So it's not that I'm expecting ESG concerns to go away. Um, I we are as a firm, we certainly put pressure on these companies to get better on any ESG. Um, uh front end, you know, we're every time we meet with them, we're pushing for people to get better because we do care about that. Um but from a stock perspective, you know, is, as these companies delever more and more of the cash flows coming back to shareholders in the forms of dividends and share buybacks, share counts are shrinking and um you know the value of the companies well are generating these cash flows go up every year.
1: Okay. A Canadian investor can sit there and they can say, I want dividends. Yep. And they typically would think about, well, first they think about Canadian banks. Mm-hmm. So I'd love your opinion on Canadian banks.
2: Sure. Um, I think that's where you've, um, it well, sort of falls into you know, what I do a fair bit, is just um, you've got to be price selective there. Um, So, you know, when they sell off really hard, uh, you probably buyers, if they run, you probably sort of just pull back away. Cause I think the outlook right now is a little bit mixed. And you heard uh, sort of David Wolf and the CEA team talk. So on the positives you've got, like capital ratios are so much better than they were during the last downturn. Um, So tier one capital ratios, you know, like 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, like really, really good capital bases. You don't have to worry about that as much as you did in like you know, 08, 09. the valuations are okay. There's a number of the Canadian banks that actually in 2023 will really benefit from acquisitions they've done. So HSBC got bought First Horizon and got bought by TD. Um, Bank of the West got bought by BMO. There's a lot of accretion in earnings that will come through in 2023. What I would say on sort of the negative side is like expense base is still going up. You're having to, you're having to pay people. If you think about economically, listen, the economy's slowing, whenever PMIs, which are purchasing manager indexes go below 50, what you end up seeing is provisions for credit losses at the banks go, like will go up. And, you know, I think the banks are thinking, you know, maybe it's th- their provisions for credit losses are 30, 35 bps. Wouldn't be surprised if they're, they're higher there. So, and then you've got capital markets and in, uh, sort of wealth management that, you know, markets aren't that, haven't been that great. So wealth management earnings are not as good and capital markets have been a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. So I think where you focus um, and where we're doing a lot of, of work, you look at, you got good capital ratios. You focus on the banks that have better funding. And what I mean by bet- better funding is companies that have better um, banks that have better deposit bases because it's cheaper. If you got a whole bunch, of you got banks that got a whole bunch of money that are sitting in um, just deposit accounts, that's really really cheap funding. And if if, if any of you have like your high yield savings accounts, you know, out there, you'll notice you're not getting anything on your uh, your high yield savings accounts still, but yet you know rates are four percent. So the banks are making really good margin there, and interest rates are up, so the margin margins are good. So Focus on companies that have better deposit bases, um, probably a little bit larger in scale and, you know, have some idiosyncratic, maybe some synergies that come through from doing acquisitions and you're probably okay. And then it's my job and our analyst job just to make sure that, um, you know, listen, the housing market, David talked about, like, it's going to come down. You can't go up 50% in the last two years and then say it's going to hold there when rates go from one to Um, one to four. So there'll be a lagged effect and housing prices um, sort of will come down. So it'll be a little bit slower, a little bit tougher environment for banks. So if you've got some idiosyncratic stuff uh, and a really good deposit base, that's probably where you focus now.
1: You you know, it's interesting. You talk about housing. Uh, I looked at one of your portfolios and you do have REITs. Yep. Same kind of thing
2: or...? So, REITs, REITs have been in a sort of an interesting asset class. It was one where 2021 was the absolute perfect scenario for real estate. So, you think when you want to buy um, real estate equities, it's basically a strong economy, which means supply and demand is good for most of the asset classes, perhaps with the exception of office in 2021. And you've got Credit markets that are tight and interest rates are low. So 2021 was the absolute perfect environment for real estate. It's actually, it was a perfect environment for equities because you had a really strong environment um, supply and demand wise and you had rates still pinned at zero. So that's why, you know, equities did really well in 2021. You come to this year, I would have probably said at the start of the year that rates are going up. But I would have probably said rates would go to three. I, I, would probably, I was a little off in how high rates went. Um, so I had to make an adjustment and bring down the read exposure probably in the in mid year. Now, having said that, I think I did a reasonable job of that and kept sort of the funds relatively per- protected. Having said that, now there are some real estate now. If you think rates are getting close to peaking uh, and you've got some of the real estate markets, companies that are down 30 or 35%, that falls into a bucket of Oh, this is actually a pretty good company, it's down 35%. You had to reflect the fact that cap rates, which are basically a discount rate you're paying for you know, your real estate equity, some in cases were at three and a half, four percent 4% when people thought rates could never go up. Um, the cost of funding for a lot of the REITs if they go to a debt market right now is like 55 you know, in some cases, 6%. So what those cap rates had to do is expand because you can't go as a real estate investment trust, you can't go and say, hey, we're going to fund an acquisition at five and a half and buy something at three and a half. You have to say, we're funding at five and a half and we're going to buy it at five and a half. So there've been a lot of cap rate expansion. That's just like, that's just how the math works. They had to expand that much and they probably expanded a little more than I would have thought at the start of the year. But if you think rates are getting a little bit closer to peaking out, um, and we actually get to that point and inflation comes under control. Um, some of these companies that are down thirty five percent are probably worth worth watching in the next year or two.
1: You and I have had great discussion about life insurance companies in the past. Uh, are any change in thoughts?
2: no I've generally for the year um, i've had more of an overweight in um, uh, property and casualty insurance with the idea of the life insurance companies, for lack of a better term, are kind of asset managers at this point. Um, they have a lot of exposure to um, sort of the asset management field and in a good market, that's really good. In a little bit of a tougher market, you know, you're not going to get as much earnings growth. So it's one of those other things falls into a little bit like banks, but sort of different. Um, you got to be opportunistic. And if you've got a strong view that the market's going up um, as an asset manager, they'll do very well. Um, if you're a little bit if the markets are sort of, you know bouncing up and down, um, you probably want to sort of find companies that have a little bit more of a idiosyncratic or just a fundamental growth story that doesn't rely on where markets and interest rates are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why this year I've had a little more of a focus on sort of property and casualty insurance where um, you've had what's sort of called a hard market it means there's not as much capital in, into the into the system and the companies can sort of keep sort of raising prices. I don't know how many all of you probably have home and uh, you know car insurance. I guess most of you will have found that those prices are not going down for you. So as those prices go up, the companies, you know, probably take a little bit more margin, and it's been a good place, a good place to be.
1: We only have a minute left. Just give me one sector that you're currently looking at.
2: One sector I'm currently looking at. Um, I'd say I'm still taking a look at uh, probably beaten up, up industrials um, is one that I've sort of started to ch- chip away at a little bit. Uh, looking, you know, things like suppliers into like um, automotive companies and EVs and it's just where you're sort of you're you're, you're do- doing the wires and the connectors and all that things with the idea that like autos never really had a cycle because like EVs is a long-term secular growth story which is great you need more every time you switch to an EV you need more connectors um, you know, the, the, the amount of electronics that go into it just go, sort of goes up but you never really had a cycle because there were so many component shortages mm. that the a normal, what's called a SAR in the US, seasonally adjusted annualized rate, uh, just the amount of cars you're selling, usually is around 17 million. Um, because you were short all the computer chips and everything, it stayed at about, like, it was down about 12. So you were actually at, right now you're kind of at sort of bottom in fundamentals and the, you know, the the PE ratios on some of these companies have gone down too. So uh, when the cycle does weaker, um, things can actually still improve there because there was just shortages everywhere and you never got to peak.
1: Don, thanks so
2: much. Yeah, Pat, my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.